following sermon is from Grace City Church, located in DY, Sydney, Australia. If you'd like to know more about us, head to gracecitychurch.net. And I'm going to talk on the theme of grace in history and grace now. Just by way of introduction to this, as a church, you've understood and been very strong in teaching about God's grace. So strong that you make it part of your name. Now I know Grace City Church. Now, to be honest, not every church that has its grace in its name is full of grace. Sadly. But I know that for you, you laid the foundation of grace and I think you changed your name to Grace City Church. So that's okay that way around. But I want to make sure that this core value that's reflected in your name, I want to teach on it again from a different perspective. Because now in Australia, as in many parts of the Western world, as we reach out to a largely post-Christian generation, we're very much like times of the New Testament now. Because there, Christianity was a tiny minority to start with, but it didn't do them any harm. They were very effective. And we're now, in the West, living in a largely post-Christian generation, and therefore, our need to show grace to society around to people we reach who have often little background of Christian truth and morality is going to test us as churches. You see, in our history as a family of churches, grace has been restored to make sure that those in the church live free of legalism and enjoy the presence of God and experiences our undeserved love and favour. That's what grace is. The next phase is to enable churches who live by grace themselves, like you do. We always keep needing reminding of it, of course. But we live by grace. We don't earn our salvation. We don't... We know we're continually accepted anyway. But the next phase for us, and I believe, and I was praying about this and I felt I should bring this message to you because I believe prophetically the next phase for you as a church is not just enjoying grace yourselves, but demonstrating grace to all sorts of people who come from very, very different backgrounds and have little understanding of Christian morality. That's the phase you're entering into now. So I want to speak on grace from that perspective. I'm also going to teach a scripture which will be unexpected in this context that shows grace in history and has lessons for us today. So what I'm doing today, instead of adjusting you or giving you new vision, I want to emphasize one of your strengths and say to you, be even more radical in your strengths. That's what I feel God would say to you prophetically. You see, ever since wrong, evil came into this world, 
which the Bible speaks about right at the beginning when it tells the story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. God has one plan throughout the history of the Bible to put everything in this earth right through Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah. Now, this, by, this book, the Bible, consists of two parts. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament tells what's hap- what happens when evil came into this world and the whole history of it, but mingled in with it, are promises that keep coming right through this Old Testament about how God is going to change everything. Then Matthew starts the second half of the Bible, second part of the Bible, the New Testament. Matthew was one of the most well-educated of Jesus' disciples. He was a tax collector. You have to be pretty, you know, pretty bright to be a tax collector. And Matthew was a tax collector. And he wrote down stories about Jesus, particularly for Jewish Christians. Luke wrote down stories for Christians who weren't Jews, but who came to know Jesus. Matthew wrote for Jewish Christians. And he starts, and I'm going to study with you, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 16. And he starts off by showing how the Jewish Messiah that these Jewish Christians, before they were believers, would have been waiting for, came fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. And started in what would be a very strange way to us, with a list of names, which we call a genealogy. Now, I don't know about you, but many Christians read the Bible reasonably systematically. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe you just pick out odd verses. I recommend you read it systematically. But if we do read it systematically, when we come to Matthew chapter 1, we say, we say to ourselves, oh, that's okay, just a list of names. We can skip through that quite quick. Have more time over breakfast this morning. We've just got to read this list of names. And it's a bit strange to us. In fact, it's a rather boring start to this wonderful New Testament. But that actually to the, is that because of our culture, which isn't terribly interested in things like that. But to the Jewish hearers, it was full of meaning because Every name would represent a story that they would have been familiar with. And writing genealogies was very popular. It still is in many parts of the world. I met in Moscow recently a young man who had been converted to Christ from Islam. He came from Kyrgyzstan. Now you all know where that is, so I don't need to explain it to you. But just for the one or two that may not, it's right in Central Asia. The capital is Bishkek, which again, I'm sure you all knew. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this young guy from Kyrgyzstan, while he was in Moscow, had found Jesus in the New Frontiers Church there. 
and he decided to send his mother back in Bishkek a present of an Injil. Now you all know what an Injil is, don't you? It's the New Testament according to the Quran. The Quran describes the New Testament as the Injil. So when we work in the Muslim world, or when we're talking to Muslims, we always talk about the Injil. And he sent an Injil to his mother in Bishkek. She wrote letters to him back. She said, what a wonderful son you are. Nice to get a letter from your mum like that, isn't it? What a wonderful son you are. You know how much I love genealogies. And you sent me a book that starts with one. You see? But for us, it's often not quite like that. In fact, and I want to read a quote from Tom Wright, he said this, the average modern person who thinks, maybe I'll read the New Testament, is puzzled to find on the very first page a long list of names he or she has never heard of. But it is important not to think that this is a waste of time. For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums. A fanfare of trumpets. You didn't have a trumpeter here, so I didn't. <laughs> and the town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession coming down a city street. All eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honour. Right at the end. Now, I want to read the genealogy to you. And I was thinking, how can I make it have the same effect on Australians today as it would have done on those Jewish hearers? So I'm going to have a go. So here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzzah, Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and 
Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That's how the genealogy is meant to be read. Thanks ever so much. That's what it was like. And Jesus in the position of greatest honour. So, what would have been the reaction of the original hearers? You see, the job of every preacher is not to make up new things, but is to have let the Bible have the same impact on the hearers today as it would have had on the original hearers. That's the job of a preacher. So you have to understand what was the reaction on the original hearers and how is that today. Well, on the one hand, the one that the um, original hearers say, this is wonderful. God has fulfilled his promises to Israel. The Messiah has come. And this is pri- Matthew's primary intention. Every promise to transform the world, overcome the devil's power and all evil, bless the nations and demonstrate God's gracious rule is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's the theme of Matthew's Gospel. On the other hand, it's a very strange genealogy for people. That's weird. Now, ladies, please excuse me. But one reason was because four women were mentioned. And that was very unusual in a genealogy in those days because they hadn't yet understood, because the Messiah hadn't yet come. But men and women are equal in Christ. And genealogies virtually never had women in them. Now, if the women had been the mothers of the nation, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah, that would have been okay. But the women mentioned here, very deliberately, were Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and the wife of Uriah. Why were these women picked out? And the people listening, the Jewish listeners would have thought, why is he mentioned them? They were all foreigners. And that wouldn't have helped. And each brought to mind, remember, every the Jewish hearers would have known the Old Testament very well. So as soon as any of these names were mentioned, they would immediately think of the story. And each of these women brought to mind a rather uncomfortable story in the Old Testament. Well known to the original hearers, even if slightly disgusting to them, little known to us even if Christians, because they're not the stories we tend to teach about. Except perhaps Ruth. The Old Testament's full of stories. 
Many of them quite strange. Many of them would make us feel uncomfortable. Culturally distant. And not the bedtime stories you would read to your children. You read Daniel in the Liar's Den. But you don't read the story of Tamar. Well, as you know, when I preach, all I do is tell stories. And so I'm going to tell you four Old Testament stories now. The stories of these can be uncomfortable but I've got a reason for doing it because all these stories help us understand the grace of God and that we must not look down on anyone but that all even the most unlikely not only have grace shown them but become contributors to the great history of God's story So firstly, Tamar. You know the story of Tamar? Well, Judah was one of the twelve sons of Jacob. We've learned about him the last few weeks because he turned up in the story of Joseph. When still a teenager, Judah left his home and his brothers and married a Canaanite woman, totally contrary to what was thought right for the descendants of Abraham. He had three sons very quickly. And as the eldest became a teenager, Judah arranged a marriage to this woman Tamar, who was also Canaanite. Because often got married younger in those days. And before having children, the eldest son died. Now, in cultures of that time, including the culture of the Old Testament and many other cultures around, they had a concept called, and this is, you might say, I'm still still telling the story, we've got to understand the background of the story. They had a concept called levirate marriage. And what is that? What it means is, If the eldest son got married and he died, then the next brother had to marry his widow. You know, many people would be quite thankful we don't have that today. (laughs) But that was the way they did it. And also, when the brother had married the widow, often taking her as a second wife, the children would legally, for the purposes of inheritance, be sons of the dead brother and not the living brother's sons. So Tamar was given to Judah's second teenage son, called Onan. And Onan didn't like this rule, so he used an unreliable but on this occasion effective method of contraception And we get one of the most awkward verses in the Bible, but we read it. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Then he died too. It's an uncomfortable story. It's in the Bible, so I'm going to teach it you. (laughs) Children are out in Sunday school, so it's okay. (laughs) 
days after the church watershed. So they... <laughs> well, the third son was a bit younger. So, so as not to give her to his third son, it's a bit risky, two had already died by being married to Tamar. <laughs> Judah sent her away to her father's house. Some years later, Tamar thought, how can I have children? Now the story gets worse. So she dressed as a prostitute and waited till Judah came past. Probably drunk from sheep shearing celebrations, certainly away from home. He went into her, not recognizing her because she was veiled. Prostitutes were all veiled then. Because he didn't, and because he didn't have the agreed payment with her, with him, left his seal with her. That's how he signed his documents, with his seal. And he left that with her because he didn't have any money. Well, the, not the agreed, he wasn't he was giving sheep and things. Okay. Well, she became pregnant. And it was told Judah, who was still technically responsible for her, even though he sent her away, your daughter-in-law is pregnant. She must die, he said. She came to him and said, the father of my child is the man whose seal this is. Judah said, she's more righteous than me. And she gave birth to twins from whom the tribe of Judah came. What a disgusting story. How remote from us. Why is it including the Bible at all, let alone chosen by Matthew in the lead up to the coming of Christ? You see, by God's grace, without Tamar, there would have been no large tribe of Judah. David came from that tribe. It was the royal tribe. We celebrate often when we sing in worship and when we book, read the book of Revelation, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Without Tamar, there would be no tribe of Judah. A woman despised, tricking her father-in-law, incest, yet God's grace works through her. The second woman named is Rahab. You ready for some more stories? Well, Joshua and his army were about to attack Jericho as they went into their promised land. Great city with massive walls was the entrance to the promised land. He decided to send spies to investigate Jericho. Now, the men went into Jericho and where could... Come on, just use your imaginations. Where could foreign men go which would not be thought unnatural for them to visit. They've just come into the city. People didn't like foreigners coming into the city. But where could they go? And everyone said, oh, all right then, I understand. Well, they went into Rahab, the prostitute's house. All sorts of men would go there. However, actually on this occasion... The ruse failed because someone did see them 
and told the king of Jericho that these strangers had come. The king of Jericho's messenger therefore knocked on the door, but Rahab, the prostitute, hid them under some flax which was drying on the roof and said they'd gone. So she told lies as well. She then demonstrated she had faith in God and she said, I believe that God will give the people of Israel success and as a reward for hiding the spies she and her faith, she and her family were saved when Jericho was attacked. Not just saved, but, and remember her background, she married one of the important leaders in Israel and became part of the royal line. Why is she there? Well, without Rahab, the conquest story of Israel coming to their land would have been different. And despite her background, she was honoured in marriage and honoured in the history of Israel. Can you cope with another story? Next woman mentioned was Ruth. Now Ruth, firstly a woman called Naomi, her husband and two sons, left Bethlehem because of famine and went to Moab, another country nearby. But Moab was an enemy of Israel and so much so because they'd been inhospitable to them, there was very clear commands about Moabites. It says, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So Moabites were particularly despised of all the foreigners around. The two sons of Naomi and her husband married Moabite women. Then the father and two sons died again. No children. Distressed, Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth returned to Bethlehem. The other daughter-in-law stayed in Moab, but Ruth identified as the people of God. She said, for where you go, to her mother-in-law, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Even though they said no Moabite could even come in. Because you broke through all that prejudice. But how to find a husband? She had to raise up children for her dead husband, but there was no brother left to marry her, so we couldn't have that one again. But there was a close relative of Naomi's called Boaz, a rich farmer. And Ruth used to glean in his fields. Now gleaning, basically, in those days, as part of God's mercy to the poor, if people gathered fruit from their orchard or grain from their fields, they, they didn't take all of it. They always left some so that the poor could pick, pick it up. And so because Ruth was poor, she went and picked up the stuff, the, the, the wheat left over. And Boaz noticed her and actually said to his young men, Leave even more for her. Well, Naomi devised a plan, not one that we would recommend in Christian dating manuals. Okay, so if you're a youth leader, don't teach your teenage just to do it this way. She said, after the harvest festival, when Boaz lies down in the threshing area after the party, lie down at his feet. This was a big risk. She did. And he woke in the night 
and found a woman at his feet. And Ruth said to him, Spread your cloak over me, because you're a close relative who can redeem me and then marry me. Spread your cloak over me. In the middle of the night. And putting your cloak over was a common way of describing marriage. In fact, when it's talk, the prophets talk about uh, when God rescued Israel, that it was like he poured his cloak over them. Boaz, who was wiser, said, go back to sleep, we'll arrange it properly in the morning. <laughs> okay? And this he did. So Ruth, a foreigner, daring to hurry along the process of marriage, yet again honoured in this genealogy for a determination and passion for the people of God. Fourth, the wife of Uriah. Now, he doesn't even mention her name. Uriah was a Hittite, again, not from Israel, but was a great soldier in King David's army. His wife was called Bathsheba. Now, the army had gone to war, but David, who should have gone with them, stayed at home, went onto his roof, and somehow saw Bathsheba bathing. She was very beautiful. David sent for her, had sex with her, and she got pregnant. Then David sent for Uriah and to cover himself up. He said, go home to your wife. Uriah refused. He said, I'm a soldier on duty. I can't go to my wife. David even got him drunk, but he still wouldn't. So David sent him back with instructions to the general to pull back and leave Uriah isolated when they attacked the city so that he got killed. David then married Bathsheba. An appalling story. Sorry, it's not much fun this morning, isn't it? In this gene, but in this genealogy, reminded the original hearers not only of Bathsheba, but the weakness of David. Even the heroes of faith were weak and sinful, but God's grace was at work turning this situation to contribute to God's overall plan. And these were the only four women mentioned in the story in the genealogy. So there you are. Four stories from the Old Testament. Great stories, disgusting stories, but stories that demonstrate God's grace. So what does this teach us? What do these stories teach us? Firstly, they teach us God's grace is more than equal to anyone's failure. God's grace is more powerful than anyone's failure and can turn our failures for good. The hymn, Amazing Grace, that we often sing, was written by John Newton, who lived just a few few uh, kilometers from where I live now, was a slave ship captain who found the grace of God and then influenced Will, William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade. Who did God choose to influence William Wilberforce? a previous slave trader who got saved. The purpose, And see, these people were not just saved and somehow scraped into the kingdom and were allowed to sit in the back row of the church. But they say, no, come right down to the front 
you have a mighty role in God's plan. Nobody must be discounted, this teaches, either on racial grounds or because of their background or past wrongdoing. Grace must be shown to all. We must take that attitude as Christians, as we engage with a society that has largely given up Christian values. We must honour all, see the potential of all, and believe that God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit can change us and in our attitude and them in who they are so that they can live as examples of godliness. We must believe that. And we must never show discrimination or disgust on any basis. Praise God, we're largely free from racial discrimination in the church now, in our churches anyway. Tragically, for generations, the church perpetuated racial discrimination. Horrible. Went to, I once went to the slave forts in Ghana. And there in Ghana was the where they used to send all the slaves into the boats. And there was a small room where hundreds were packed in. And on top was a Roman Catholic church. And then, when the Protestants took over, instead of abolishing the slave trade, they actually made it worse. And they built a Protestant church because they couldn't worship in a Roman Catholic church. And that was on top of the slaves as well. I thought, oh. whether it's racially or because of lifestyle or life choices we must regard them like those four women and show grace in our attitude so in our evangelism we don't just reach out with truth but with grace Jesus was full of grace and truth grace and truth were not opposites, but they were held in tension. That is, you must have as much truth as possible and as much grace as possible. But in your truth, you show grace. And often the Christian church doesn't do that. We believe certain things are right, because they're in God's word, but we show utmost grace and acceptance to those that don't practice them. Don't we? very quiet God next we learn God does not just forgive us but enables each one to have a vital role in God's plan to change the world this genealogy said God has a plan to change the world and all those people named were part of that God still has a plan to change the world it's through Jesus and through everybody who, because they have believed in Jesus and the fact that he died for their, their wrongdoing on the cross and broke the power of their shame and broke the power of evil, we are not only just saved, we are in Christ, therefore have a role to play in God's purposes. Now, everyone in Christ, you know, the plan of God is like a wonderful drama and at the end of a film or when you go to the theatre you see a list of all the actors 
God's grace means that we are not only saved, but we're listed in the actors amongst those bringing about the purposes of God in our lifetime in this world. And that's what these were. Stories that we find difficult to understand in the Bible are important and we need to understand why they're there. Even the heroes and heroines of faith had weaknesses like we do. We both want to overcome temptation but understand that God can still turn failure to his purposes. See, Israel were not God's people because of their virtues or because they were better than others but because of God's grace received by faith and it's the same for us. Now, repentance is important. I'm not under, I'm not, repentance is important. But repentance, again, we often use that word just as if it's a one-off event. Repentance doesn't mean a one-off event. I think we've got too much crisis and not enough process in our understanding of how people come to faith. Some it's crisis. Apostle Paul, he got thrown off his horse. It was a crisis. Others, it's a process. And they can't quite remember exactly when they changed, but they've changed. Because repentance is not just saying sorry. James, come and help me, please. Repentance is, I was walking in this direction, full of sin, pleasing myself, living selfishly. And then, I started to turn around. I heard the good news about Jesus. And I began walking in a different direction, loving him, working for him, receiving at some stage his forgiveness, knowing his power in my life, receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm walking in a different direction. That's what repentance is. Metanoia, it's a turnaround. All these women turned around. David turned around. What's my conclusion then? This is I close. God's grace is able to turn every failure, every situation, every background around. And we as churches that believe in God's grace are called to experience it ourselves. Now we we have been. The, the worship was full of grace today. I don't know if James knew what I was preaching on. It was full of grace. And some of the songs, I thought, there was one song I didn't know. I'd never sung it before. The really, the one with a real great beat, you know? What's that called? You know, the one. Anyway, it was great. I loved, I loved it. And I just, I didn't know it before. But it talked about grace calling my name. Grace involves us in the accomplishment of God's purposes. And every person you meet, whatever their lifestyle, whatever their orientation, whatever their background, you show God's love to because they are possibly those who will one day so demonstrate the grace of God that they become a mighty part in the fulfillment of his plan. That's how you look at people. You understand? And I'll say to you as a church, you're going to enter that season. 
I feel, you know, when I prayed about what message, I have, I have preached about from this genealogy before. I've done the drums before. No, I didn't do the drums. I've always had a drummer to do the drums. If I did the drums, it would be absolutely terrible. But when I was praying, what did I share Sydney? One was the story of Joseph. And the other was, God wants to transform you from being a people who enjoy grace to people that show grace to all sorts of people. Had God's call upon you. We'll restart it. I'm not saying anything, not, it's not something you disagree with or haven't started to do. But there's going to be challenges to it. You'll find the equivalence of Tamar, of Ruth, of Rahab, of Bathsheba and David. You mustn't blame Bathsheba for it. Although she probably was bathing in an inappropriate place. But <laughs> you will find them. And Jesus was here. He showed grace to all sorts of polar opposites. I think I mentioned this at the camp. He showed grace to the oppressed in Jericho, blind Bartimaeus. And he showed grace to the oppressor, Zacchaeus. That's our God. And so, that we believe his grace in, expressed in mission to our city will overcome and accomplish the purposes of God. Let's worship him for his grace, shall we?